Father, as we explore in our souls right now, the landscape of evidence of your glories revealed throughout creation and on through special revelation in your plan to redeem mankind from the throes of his sin unto redemption, perfect reconciliation, fellowship with the holy God and worship of your great name. Lord, we truly are overflowing with reasons to give glory and honor to your name. You are our Savior, and as such, you stood in the gap between us and a holy God, offering your own body and blood as sacrifice for our sin. You were our once and for all and perfect high priest in taking our cause before the Father, satisfying the wrath our sin deserved, and interceding on behalf of your people, representing them before a holy God, satisfying the terms of their atonement. Jesus, you are king. Not only are you king of the hearts that you have died for, but you are king of all the earth. Whether man continues in his rebellion or bows before your lordship and before your throne in humble submission and repentance and in faith, nevertheless, you rule and you reign. We recognize with great fear, great reverence, great awe, and also great relief that our sins are atoned for the fact that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And there's coming a day of your visitation at the end of history when all must give account. And unless we, Lord, while there remains today, cry out for hope in Christ, deliverance from our sins, and the punishment that a just God levies against every infraction against His perfect and holy law, unless we cry out for salvation as sinners, there is no hope for us. There's just the expectation of a fiery end, an eternal separation, and a pouring out of your wrath and just deserts against the infraction, against the crimes, against a holy and righteous God. Father, I pray that these truths and this perspective of life and death, eternal life and death, would shape our praise, would encourage our faith, would strengthen our witness, would embolden us and put foundation stones underneath us, Lord, that are unshakable against whatever we face by way of trial and opposition in this short life. We pray as we turn to your Holy Scripture and see the beauty and the glory of what you have revealed in the pages of special revelation from the earliest of the patriarchs all the way through to the last of the apostles, I pray that we would be strengthened as we hear testimony of those who are our family members who have gone before and stand in Christ justified because they have placed their faith in the Messiah to come and the Messiah who has come. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your word, the time that we can spend in it. We pray that the Holy Spirit would maximize it to the glory of Christ's name, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work and that your church might be continually sanctified, blemish and spots erased, to be presentable on the day of your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. This morning we have the privilege not only of offering our songs of thanksgiving to the Lord and praise of His great name, but also considering the revelation of his holy word from the account of our forefather in the faith, Abraham. We return to our Genesis series today, and I beg that you would turn there with me as well as we open chapter 18 in the story and the legacy of Abraham, whose name has recently been changed. And as God continues to reveal his plan of salvation to him and through him and his lineage. The title of this morning's message is entertaining angels. 
not just a Newsboys song. I kind of remember that vaguely. But long before the Newsboys sang about it, the scriptures wrote about this concept. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Inspiration for Christian hospitality comes from the perhaps most profound example of its virtue, when in the story, the testimony of Abraham and indeed Lot, men who showed up at the door turned out to be God himself and angelic beings, thereby entertaining angels unawares, those who opened their home to the visitation of the Almighty. The aim of this morning's message is to deepen our appreciation and understanding, referencing the history of covenant fellowship to deepen our appreciation and understanding of the covenant, you could say, by referencing the history of covenant fellowship. And this incident in Abraham's life is a significant milestone in the history of covenant fellowship. You could say covenant friendship, covenant personal interaction over a meal. This should be very familiar to us because next week we will have, even in our experience, a meal as it were before us, wherein Intimate covenant friendship and fellowship is signified and participated in at the Lord's table. So just a hint for application as the experience of Abraham relates to ours. Before we get into the body of our message, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word this morning? and Let us consider these scriptures in our hearing as his infallible truth is proclaimed to us this day. Listen to the word of God, Genesis 18, 1 through 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Verse 9, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
So the last couple weeks at our house, we've had people over after church on Sunday, which is a great joy. And I really appreciate the effort that my wife puts into preparing a meal, and I try to do the best I can to help to make the house presentable as well by doing a little cleaning on Saturday, rallying the troops to tidy up a bit. I trust that we're all familiar with these kind of preparations that anticipate a shared meal or a time of fellowship, right? So ladies, as you're thinking about a meal, you're going to be, do some entertaining, have somebody over. Is it not the goal to make your environment, your home, and the meal presentable? And this is a way to honor one's guests. So if you have a meal that people appreciate and it is a pleasant experience, it's a way to show that you appreciate the company and it's a gift, it's a blessing to those that come. Now this is worth it because you trust that this fellowship you will benefit from as well. There's a certain synergy, there's a certain uh, experience that you have when you share in godly Christian fellowship and friendship. You end up with memories and joys that you share together you wouldn't otherwise experience if you were just alone. These efforts are usually rewarded with the joys of fellowship and this meal provides the opportunity to share in conversation and friendship. And it could be that in our culture, a meal as a cultural symbol or touchstone of fellowship is less prominent than it once was. But I, I hope that we're regaining a bit of that in our own culture as a church by sharing meals together. But recognize in the Near East, this was not only was this not uncommon, it was actually prescribed in the context of covenant that a covenant relationship, a solemn vow and agreement between parties would be solemnized and sealed by a meal. The meal was more than just an occasion, a necessary choleric intake to have energy for the next day. There was way more purpose in a meal, biblically speaking and covenantally speaking, than that. It wasn't just a food source to continue on about your tasks. No, it was an opportunity to certify friendship and fellowship. It represented something of your means that you grant by way of a gift. It's a, a selfless sharing when the host would offer of his fatted calf, let's say, or of his richest crops or of his best wine. We think of a marriage ceremony. Marriages are usually followed by a reception, even in our day. And this is also an echo of this principle of old. It's the same idea. This is an occasion, the solemnization of this relationship, of this covenant, of this marriage, this is an occasion that's worthy of a feast. Hence, we have a feast in our text today. So now imagine preparing a meal and your visitor, your guest is going to be God himself. How would you prepare that meal? Imagine preparing for God himself to visit your home accompanied by two messengers who will go on with him to execute divine judgment on neighboring settlements. How would you prepare? Wow. What conversation might you share over this food? Well, as far-fetched as this may sound, in fact, this is the historical reality. This was indeed the situation Abraham and Sarah find themselves in in Genesis 18. The event is not just life-changing for the patriarch and his family. You better believe they remember this meal for the rest of their lives. But furthermore, it's recorded in Holy Scripture. We have read as much today. And therefore, it serves as a milestone in history to reinforce a couple things. Number one, to reinforce covenant promise. Covenant promises were reiterated at this communion meal. Secondly, it is to reinforce communion as, uh, as modeled between God and man in this experience of Abraham and the Lord 
of glory. Covenant or relationship, communion, and also promise. These were the major uh, milestones historically, redemptively featured at this dinner occasion. We have noted that both the book of Genesis and Abraham's life are something like, I use this picture of a string of pearls, let's say. And so on this string of pearls, um, you have featured the gemstones, that which is of value. The Bible records history in a similar fashion. Remember, we've talked about the philosophy of history biblically is time measured by the progress of redemption. God's purpose is to save a, pe a people. Those are the milestones that are worthy of note in the timeline of biblical history. And this is true in the book of Genesis. Each time the Lord intervenes to reveal himself in a way that, re that shows his, himself and his power and also uh, reveals more of his plan to save his people, that's featured. And that's true generally in the book of Genesis and it's true specifically in the experience of Abraham. And this today is certainly one of those moments. This moment in Abraham's testimony is surely significant. It holds out hope of the covenant. It prefigures a covenant memorial or a ceremony or an ordinance that will remain in the experience of God's people forever, if you will. In other words, this is a prefiguring of what the Passover would show. A sacrifice is provided. A lamb is slain. A meal is shared. Promises are made. Covenant is assured. And then there's sacrificial meals that come up in the law. And then there's Jesus who fulfills the sacrificial meal of Passover and says, of his own body and blood, take and eat, represented in the wine and the bread. And this meal yet continues today, as I mentioned before, even in this body next week. And so we have this moment in Abraham's testimony as significant, marking a milestone in covenant history that lays forth the ceremony, albeit in probably early or seed form, an ordinance that will remain in the experience of all the covenant faithful forever. Remains, so those who remains, and this will remain a central fixture, that is to say, of the devotion of Abraham's spiritual descendants, even to this day and even beyond this life. After all, we will one day all reassemble at the marriage, what? Supper of the Lamb. Again, covenant and meal. Two aspects of God's character. Let me just say this by way of overview as well. Two aspects of God's character are evident at this exchange and should be emphasized as to, as so, so that we can have a good understanding, a biblically informed understanding of the nature and character of God. If God is going to have a meal with you, this reveals in a surprising way how intimately personal He is. Isn't that correct? If God was going to sit down, condescend, that is to make himself available and knowable and interactable, if you will, with his servant, that implies, that demonstrates a high level of interpersonal, of intimate, personal interaction of a holy God. And this is a popular idea today, but this isn't all that is revealed. Not only is God intimately personal as uh, as uh, demonstrated in this event, but he is also intensely powerful. Intensely powerful. Sarah was afraid when she had laughed in her mind or in her heart and she was rebuked for it. She was suddenly afraid because she realized that she was not only in the presence of one who was intimately personal, but also intensely powerful. And his promise was that he could raise a dead womb to life 
of a couple in their 90s to produce the promised seed. And not only this, the intense power of God is seen on the very next step of these three men's journey on to Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, this isn't, wasn't the only stop on their journey. The next one would be to rescue Lot and his family because fire would be rained down from heaven on the cities of the plains and the cities of the Jordan Valley who well deserved it. A short-sighted view of the idolater tends to sacrifice one of these aspects of God's character for the other. In other words, or another way to put it, the ancients, in ancient times, they entertained notions of God that terrified them and were beyond and, and rendered their view of God beyond hope. In other words, they shuddered before a sovereign, tyrannical, capricious, arbitrary God. And the only thing they knew was terror and fear. And so they tried uh, in their strength and works to appease him through whatever means they knew how. Not such a popular notion for modern man. Modern man errs on the other side. He prefers a, quote, loving God who could never stomach judgment. But this event portrays God for what he truly is. He is just and he does have steadfast love. He's intimately personal and he's intensely powerful. And if you don't know those two aspects of God, you don't know God himself. Abraham was introduced to this God over a meal. The God who would punish the unbelievers by fire rained down from heaven in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the God who would sit down for a communion meal with his servant, reassuring him that his promises were absolute and would come to pass and were yes and amen to those who believe. So this event, this that we read of today, shatters both these stereotypes of a capricious a, of a capricious, cruel God or a God that sacrifices any justice on account of his love. God himself sits down with a meal for a meal with Abraham before raining fire from heaven upon the ungodly, which we will visit next in our text at a later time. With that introduction, let me give you a heading whereby we will organize in three sections our text today. God's meal with Abraham involved the following. Number one, divine visitation, verses one and two. Number two, God's meal with Abraham involved reception and communion, how Abraham, Abraham received him, and then the communion the, that took place, the relationship, the interaction. And then thirdly, word and response, the proclamation of God's promise, and then how it was received by Abraham and Sarah. God's meal with Abraham firstly involved divine visitation. Verses one and two. We read in Genesis 18, And the Lord appeared to him at the oaks of... Kids, do you remember where Abraham was living at this time? Mamre. Mamre, that is correct. Does anyone remember the oaks of Mamre, this reference? Does that ring a bell? Turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis 13. At the end of Genesis 13, we have a sort of parting of ways. Two roads diverged in the wood, as Robert Frost was it would tell us. And this is kind of an example of that. Lot is going one direction, Abraham the other. The Lord said to Abraham, verse 14, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the, from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. So you see, this is a significant moment in Abraham's life as well. This was also an appearing of the Lord to the patriarch, to our forefather instructing him as to the land promise. In Genesis 18, he's instructing Abraham and Sarah as to the seed promise, their children. 
But this was the land promise, the area in which he would be given as an inheritance and his lineage. So Abraham's given these instructions to rise and walk through the length and breadth of the land and so forth. And then finally in verse 18, the chapter closes as follows. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The setting of this divine, uh, of this divine visitation is significant. It happens again at the oaks of Mamre. This is a place where God had appeared to Abraham before and given him a prior promise. Now God appears at the Oaks of Mamre again and gives him a reinforcing, a, he confirms the promise uh, even more fully with word and meal, word and ordinance, if you will, or sacrament. And as such, this is the testimony to a man of faith. Why did Lot move his tents over to the cities of the plain? Because by judging by the eyes down in the Jordan Valley, much more lush and promise of temporal prosperity was much greater. But Abraham stayed at the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron. Why? Because God told him that was where the place that he would be rooted and grounded in the promises of the future covenant. So Abraham in faith continued to stay in, by the Oaks of Mamre, in his tent. And so now, some 13 years later, Abraham has waited and waited, still no child, and God appears to him again. The setting is significant. Where does this take place? It opens, or our scene opens, at the Oaks of Mamre. Turn over to Genesis 19, 1 and 2. There's a setting in which Lot receives the same visitors. It's interesting to contrast the two. Note verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise up early and go on your way. Very similar, is it not? With one marked difference. The Lord visits Abraham at the place of covenant in Hebron in Ma by the Oaks of Mamre. But when he visits Lot, it's in a different place entirely. Where is Lot? He's at the gates of Sodom. Kids, remind us, what is the legacy of Ham? It's Ham and the city builders. Now, Ham and the city builders represents hope in the city of man, a place where man, by his best efforts and ingenuity, can engineer salvation, the hope of salvation through his collective efforts. That idea is live, alive and well from Babel till today. Lot represents the city of man. And the gates of the city are places, place of significance, influence, and importance. In other words, if someone would sit at the gates of a city, they were likely an official, an influential individual. They had likely rose to a position of promise, prominence in that society. And this is where we find Lot. Lot has sought, undoubtedly, a position of prominence in the city of man. And though Lot himself was a believer, nevertheless, he has taken refuge in a very dangerous place. Will you recognize the Lord's visitation when he comes? Let me ask you, where is the safer place to be? The story unfolds. If you stand on the promises of God, if you base your assurance of hope for the future, let's say, on that which God has ordained in his word and revealed, then you will not only recognize the visitation of the Lord, but you will enjoy sweet assurance, and sweet communion with him. However, 
If you drift to the city of man and seek prominence and influence in the worldly way of things, the Lord will come. By his grace, you will recognize him. And I pray that you would, but he will come with severe discipline to save you as by the skin of your teeth, to save you as by fire. And this is a juxtaposition in our text between these two settings. And so let us, here's the application, set up camp on God's promises as it were. There are a million things that the city of man will tell you are good grounds for assurance, good insurance policies, good things to give you comfort in this meantime between now and death. Don't listen to them. Set up your camp where God's promises are, being faithful to him. Do not compromise the gospel. Do not recast your understanding of a correct knowledge of scripture and who Christ is and who God is because it is inconvenient or culturally inappropriate to uh, take such a principled stand in this day and age. To do so, to cave, to compromise, would be to pitch your tents closer and closer to the city of Sodom. And you may not, if you prove to be apostate, never saved in the first place, even recognize the Lord's coming when he comes. For everyone but Lot in the city of the plains, in the cities of the plains, they didn't recognize God when he came. He was coming, he was coming in judgment. If their eyes had been opened to the reality of their situation, they would have repented, realizing that this visitation meant that within days they would be utterly destroyed unless they repented of their sin of sodomy, of their sin of being inhospitable to the Lord of glory and refusing to welcome God in flesh into their midst other than to violate him with their hedonistic, sinful, perverse, sexual, and otherwise desires. These people were so reprobate in their minds and so perverted in their ideals and their, the morality and godliness of God's order had so fallen out of their society that they wanted to violate these men. One, the Lord of glory, and two, likely angelic messengers, the ones who had the power to decree a firestorm of judgment upon their city. There is a divine visitation, and it results in one of two things. Number one, covenant assurance. Number two, judgment that sinners deserve. Where will we be when the Lord visits this world with judgment? Will we be set up with our tents in the, by the oaks of Mamre, as it were? Though it may be, we may be alienated from the city of man. Though we may be unpopular on the outskirts, marginalized in something like an exile, the way Peter tells us, will we nevertheless set up camp upon the inerrant, inspired word of God and believe, I, and, and believe without wavering what God has declared in his holy scriptures? I pray that that is where we set up camp. That's where Abraham, the man of God, set up camp. Thus, when the Lord appeared to him, he recognized the Lord and he immediately prepared a meal. <clears throat> Notice this posture. There's a certain readiness that Abraham demonstrates. First of all, he lifts up his eyes, verse 2, and looks, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And then, of course, he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Notice this posture of readiness that Abraham assumed. Now, the historians tell us, or commentators that I've read say, that it was common in the Near East to sit by the door of your tent in the heat of the day, if you were a hospitable type, to offer a place of refuge for those who are passing by. 
caravans, you know, in sort of nomadic culture would often be weary and they would seek for some shade and some rest in the heat of the noonday sun. And so Abraham was ready to receive those who might be in that situation. That is to say, he, he demonstrated a man, a man of character, a man who was willing to bless others with the means that God had provided him, a man who would welcome his tent to the stranger, and no doubt for the opportunity to share with him the knowledge of the Almighty God, to witness, as it were, to be a light to the nations, as God had told him he would be, even with his own testimony, going all the way back to Genesis 12. So in this posture of readiness, willingness to share the gospel, if you will, and a selfless servitude to God's kingdom, Abraham sat, Abraham sat by the door of his tent. And in this posture of readiness and faithfulness to the Lord, he was able to recognize the Lord of glory when he came. Uh, he says as much, these three men appear. He bows down and says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now notice there's a number of details in the text. It's hard to catch them all. When it says he lifted up his eyes and looked, you could go back and compare that to that phrase used in Genesis 13 as well, verses 10 through 14. There, Lot lifts up his eyes to the cities of the plains, the city of man. What does it mean biblically to lift up one's eyes? Well, in summary, the most simplest um, under translation or understanding, interpretation, is to capture the attention, to direct your attention. So one lifts up their eyes, they direct their attention to something. But it can mean much more than this. It can mean to center your affections. It can mean to hold something in high esteem, to look up to someone. We're familiar with that language. If we look up to someone, it's to lift up our eyes to them, it's to hold them in high esteem. It places a value judgment, a priority in something. And so I don't think this language is accidental. Whereas Lot, on the one hand, lifted up his eyes to the city of man and the culture, the wicked yet prosperous apparent culture around him, Abraham was called in Genesis 13 to lift up his eyes to the land of promise. Look to the east, north, south, west, and see the heritage, the inheritance that I will give you. And now, as Abraham is obedient in training his eyes toward the promises of God, he lifts up his eyes in this instance and recognizes the Lord. He sees him, he bows himself to the earth, and he says, O Lord, which in the original language I'm told is a reference usually exclusively to refer to God himself. So the, these men appear to him in human form. Nevertheless, Abraham recognizes something extraordinary is going on here, and he answers accordingly. Could we have a picture of the Trinity here? This is an interesting question. Why three men? The language, as we see, uh, Abraham directs his attention, and there uh, before him is the Lord and two others. This is certainly at least um, the appearance of the Lord in a way that uh, a human being can tangibly see. So I have a, a trivia question for you kids. What do we call it when God shows himself to humans in the Old Testament? You guys remember what that's called? Starts with a TH. Anyone remember? When God reveals himself to human beings in a way that they can either see or hear, they can experience with their senses. Anyone remember what that is? Adults, maybe you can pitch in here. What do we call that in theology? Anybody? Theophany, someone says. Very good. Yes, this is a theophany. This is the appearance of God in human flesh. And as we consider that reality, our mind should immediately go to Jesus Christ. 
there would come another, not so much theophany, but incarnation. Yes, it would be an appearance of God in human flesh, but it would be the fulfillment of what is prefigured here. Here, God reveals himself and this moment in human flesh to bring the message of salvation to his servant. This anticipates a, a moment in the future, the incarnation, where God will reveal himself by taking on flesh in the incarnation to not only reveal salvation, but to satisfy salvation, to be crucified in the place of sinners, and to be raised from the dead, and to ever live, even now, as fully God and fully man, interceding as the perfect high priest for all of us. So this threefold revelation here of these two at least angelic beings and God in flesh is really something else. We can at least say this much, let me submit. This is a theophany in the context of three persons. You could say a theophany in the context of three heavenly persons. It is at least a triune appearing in early revelation of God to his servant, appearing as in flesh, anticipating the incarnation and reflecting in these three persons, God perhaps in Trinity. This is divine visitation. This is significant. This is profound. This meal that is about to take place imply or it involves this divine visitation, which has real significant, absolute life-changing historical milestone implications connected to it. Major point number two, God's meal with Abraham not only involved divine visitation, but reception and communion. Abraham first extends a humble invitation. Verse three, four, let's go to. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Notice it's a humble invitation. He says a little water. While I bring a morsel of bread, again, in the context here, a small amount, right? That you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham extends a humble invitation, perhaps as if to communicate, I am a man compared to what you deserve. I am a man of meager means. Would you please bless me with your presence and I will offer what little offering that I have, a little water to wash your feet and a little bread to sustain yourself on the way. It's sort of the heart of the widow with two mites. You know, who did Jesus commend? Who did Jesus say was the one who had the heart of true worship? The one who gave to be seen of men spilling coins so that they could ring throughout the courtyard into the coffers of the temple? Or the widow who no one noticed except for the Lord himself dropping her two meager coins in which represented most everything she owned? It was, of course, the latter. And in a heart similar to this, or let's another New Testament comparison. Think of Mary. She takes this bottle of expensive perfume. She pours it out and she takes of herself, even her hair and her dowry, presumably. And she uses it to wash the feet of her master. Water would be scarce in these parts, but Abraham is going to freely give of all his means in order to bless those who come recognizing it is so far less than what they deserve. Now, behind the scenes, Abraham is, doing the, or is going to prepare the most extravagant feast he can possibly muster. Notice in verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. 
Uh, so I learned this in my study this week. Uh, kids, let's have a guess. Guess how many uh, gallons is three sias of flour? So three sias of flour equals how many gallons? Can anyone guess? Oh, wait, wait. Uh, who's, who said five? Theo? Theo, okay. How come you always answer every question correctly, Theo? You're awesome. So Theo gets it right. Three sias of flour is five gallons on the money. So this is more than a morsel, is it not? This is more than a little water, so to speak. Abraham went quickly into the tent and to Sarah and said, quick, being translated into modern vernacular, five gallons of flour, a fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And then what does Abraham do next? Verse seven, he ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. And this language uh, recalls the uh, choosing carefully that which would be worthy of sacrifice. Young, tender, good calf, uh, without spot or blemish, the best of the flocks, the first fruits, the, the yield, and so forth. So Abraham took uh, the best of his resources, five gallons of flour, kneading it into cakes. He took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took more delectables of the time, like think super high-end goat cheese or something. He took curds and milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this reception and then the ensuing communion is pretty significant. First of all, it starts, as I've mentioned, with the humble invitation. Abraham acknowledges in his response in his reception, receiving these men as his honored guests at dinner, he acknowledges the extraordinary circumstances using this reference, Adonai, Lord, usually reserved for God himself. He uh, runs to get water to wash the feet. He runs to uh, get, conscript his wife into making a bunch of cakes. He takes from the best of his means to offer these men a meal. From his posture of faith, we're able to recognize, or we, we see that he was able to recognize and respond, respond appropriately to the visitation of Yahweh. Turn to Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Now, it is very illustrative that on the same journey, the Lord made two stops. The one was to have communion with Abraham, the other was to pronounce judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Same journey, two stops. When the Lord returns, the day of the Lord, it is always in this pattern. Salvation for his people and judgment of the wicked. And this took place at this time. Now, if you were not prepared to receive the Lord of glory by worship, adoration, and acknowledging, testifying to your faith, by bringing the best of your means the way Abraham and to his credit, as far as he did so, Lot as well. If you did not receive the Lord of glory in this way, how would you receive him? Revelation 6 is the fulfillment of this picture in ultimate sense, and this is what it sounds like. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The Lord comes as a lamb, 
And he is one of two things. He is either the lamb of sacrifice that is recognized and that is, that is prefigured, that is represented in this communion meal where a lamb or an animal has been slaughtered to accommodate the relationship and the meal between Abraham and God himself. Either the lamb is recognized as that lamb, the sacrificial lamb, or you will know the lamb and you will receive him as the lamb of wrath. And you will beg for a premature death because you cannot endure the wrath and the judgment that is poured out on your head. And this is what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. Again, just to reiterate and to reinforce what we went over before, there is a relationship between reception of the Lord of glory, the faith of the individual, and what follows. If God is going to return, and when he returns, depending on the state of your heart in relationship with him, it makes all the difference in the world. You will either sit down to a glorious, extravagant feast, even the marriage supper of the Lamb, or on that final day of the Lord's visitation, when the man comes around, as Johnny Cash used to sing, when the man comes around, you will either sit down at an extravagant feast laid before you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you will cry out for the rocks to fall upon your head because you cannot endure the wrath that is being poured out upon you. This invitation, this reception of the Lord makes all the difference in the world. We move from an, a humble invitation to this extravagant feast. And this recalls several things all the way through Scripture. It will become a part of the regular prescribed worship of the people of God to partake often in covenant meals. This would be true of the Passover and Exodus, where a meal would become a fixture in the worship of the people all the way through their history and experience, remembering God's grace upon them when the lamb that was slain provided an escape from death. This was true in the sacrificial feasts and the feasts that are prescribed in Leviticus that pictured uh, the glorious communion that is available only when a true when a sacrifice a substitute sacrifice is provided this is pictured in the mosaic law when the sacrifices would be killed on the altar and then the priests would actually uh, eat portions of the sacrifice and then ultimately in matthew 26 the fulfillment of these pictures comes to the fore and this of course is what we referenced before and what we will partake in Next week, and let me read you the fulfillment of Genesis 18 and these other pictures in the Levitical law, the feasts, and the book of Exodus, the fulfillment of this in the words of Jesus Christ shortly before his death at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In this early picture of covenant meal in Genesis 18, an animal was slaughtered. Right? Abraham went to the herd. He took a calf, tender and good, gave it to the young man. Something of a, perhaps a prototypical picture of sacrifice. And then as the bread and the wine, presumably, and this uh, calf is there, 
there is a covenant meal wherein peace and fellowship is sealed in this exchange of relationship over this event. And this was just an early picture, if you will, of what Jesus would fulfill. And the lamb would be himself. What is provided at the Lord's table whereby the sealing of our peace with God is assured. It is his own body and his own blood. See, it's mysterious to many why Jesus would say you must partake of my body and my blood. Well, it's a picture of the sacrificial ceremonial feast of old. When the lamb that died in the place of the one who deserved it was partaken or was actually part of the feast, that certified in this feast that the wrath was satisfied by the death of another and that communion was established. And now the Lamb of God comes and institutes himself as the very means whereby the punishment is satisfied in his own death and then communion commences. And this is what is pictured at the Lord's table. There is a reception of the Lord followed by a covenant meal. We move from this humble invitation to an extravagant feast and we move to a certainty and a certification of the covenant as a result of this shared experience. And this is what is in view. Final point this morning. God's meal with Abraham not only involved divine visitation, not only reception and communion, but finally the word and response. The word of the Lord comes, verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, listen to this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the, door, at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Moses, our narrator, tells us, informs us, reminds us. Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So after that, Sarah responds. Notice that phrase, I will surely return. I asked myself in my own study this week, in what sense would God return? I think at least this much is certain. God would return in that His power would be miraculously evident, bringing God's glorious fulfillment and resurrection power in the conception of Isaac and the birth of the covenant son. Turn, if you would, to one final cross-reference, maybe final, in Luke chapter 1. So I will surely return, and also remind you that this happened after an ascension event as well. In Genesis 17, 22, when he had finished talking with him, that is, with God had finished talking with Abraham, Abraham, he's, it says, God went up from Abraham. God ascends, as it were, after revealing himself to Abraham. And after his ascension, so to speak, he returns to give him these covenant promises over the meal, and then he promises he will return again. So you see a pattern, ascension and return. Of course, this pattern is ultimately pictured at the, end of, or at the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends but promises that he will return. That is to say, in the same way that God's miraculously, miraculous power would be evident when the dead womb would bring forth life and the covenant son, the significant son, Isaac, would be birthed to the, uh, to the covenant uh, couple, Abraham and Sarah. In the same way, the Lord will return in glory and miraculously raise from the dead all who have fallen asleep. And so after Jesus ascends, he will return and raise the dead. After God ascends, he returns and, and uh, 
plants the seed in the dead womb, as it were, all the way back. And so this is hard to believe. I mean, put yourself in Sarah's shoes. Would you have your doubts? I, I could imagine that you would. I think at this time, you know, up into, into their ni- well into their 90s, it only stands to reason that you would be a little skeptical, especially when you've been told this before and now you've waited 13 years, no sign of any contractions anytime soon. Luke 1, 34. Why did God do this this way? Well, it anticipates another miraculous event. Mary said to the angel, of course, the angel had said to Mary, says, do not be afraid, Mary, in verse 31, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This would be a miraculous event because we're talking a virgin here. Mary acknowledges as much in 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Similar to Sarah's question, like, how will this be since I am 90 plus years old, right? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In other words, the Lord will return to you, as it were. In the same way that the Lord promised to return to Sarah of old, this time next year, and you shall bear a son. In the same way, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel says to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is called the Son of God in part because He was by sovereign generation, that is to speak, in the womb of Mary, born of a virgin. And then it goes furthermore, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, another barren woman who will conceive. Why? Because the power of the Most High had visited her as well. And who would she bear? John the Baptist. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And that is the response, similar to Abraham's. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So you see, the experience of Sarah, who went long before the experience of Mary, likely served to encourage Mary's faith. She stood in the long line of women who didn't need to fear anything so long as they trusted God and God's order for their life. This is what 1 Peter 3 has taught us recently, has it not? You are her children, ladies, if you do not fear anything that is fearful. In other words, when God challenges you in your walk with him, if you respond in faith in the legacy of Sarah of old, who God did the impossible through, of Mary, who God, though a virgin, gave a child, of Elizabeth, who in her elderly years became the mother of John the Baptist, if you remember the legacy of God's sovereign work through your forebears, it will encourage you for your calling even this day. The Lord will surely return, whether it's his particular call in your life to give you the encouragement and endurance that you need to serve him faithfully along the way, and or even looking further down the line, his final return, wherein he will raise us all from the dead unto a fellowship with him eternally at the marriage supper of the Lamb, body and soul. Word in response. The Lord says he will surely return. Sarah will have a son. But how does Sarah respond? Kids, what did Sarah say when God said she would have a baby? What did she say? Kids, how did Sarah respond? She laughed, that's right. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and the Lord and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? How can she cannot conceive looking at the circumstances? 
how she could participate in the joys of childbearing when she's in her 90s. And so this is humorous to her. She laughs sort of cynically in a flash of unbelief. I am worn out is her confession. Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And, uh, oh, the Lord said to Abraham, now listen, Sarah laughed to herself. So this is likely not something that was audible. No one heard it except the Lord and Sarah's own heart. The Lord responds, however, he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And there it is reiterated, I will return to you at the appointed time. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Similar reassurance was granted Mary, was it not? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will overshadow you. Shadow you, this will be the work of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Uh, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, she says. Let it be to me according to the word. The angel departed from her, but not before reassuring her that nothing is impossible with God. Do not be afraid, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. God's word comes and challenges us in the limitations and frailty of our mere creatureliness, the fact that we are finite, limited creatures, and also in our sin nature where we get cynical and think that the future is best, the most probable thing to happen in the future is based on my experience in the past. No, that which happens in the future is according to God's sovereign ordination. And when he gives you his word, it is stronger than your experience. And this is the challenge. When the idol of your personal experience, your personal feelings, your personal doubt, your personal failures tell you that the future will not likely hold out any hope of redemption or salvation, or purpose in what you are struggling through right now, I encourage you to look to those who have gone before and see how the Lord gently, graciously, firmly rebuked them and said, my word is how you know the future, not your experience. Repent of the doubt. Repent of the short-sighted thinking and the cynicism that sometimes clings to the dust of your feet. Let it be washed off by the washing of God's word. And, re- and know this, that at the appointed time, the Lord will return. This time next year, in the case of Sarah, she would conceive and bear a son. In the case of Mary, Holy Spirit would hover over her, descend upon her, and she would conceive Jesus Christ. In the case of every true believer, in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, at the appointed time, it says in Scripture, Christ was born, he was incarnate, and satisfied the terms of our own spiritual birth. You see, we were born again, sovereignly. And at the appointed time, Jesus was born of a woman to take on the burden of redemption. He went to the cross. He rose again, and he will return. And at the appointed time, his spirit applies the truth of salvation to your heart. And when that happens, you are born again as though from spiritual death. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And whence we once all walked, this faith is a gift of God. Otherwise, you could boast about it. And when that happened... A miracle took place at God's appointed time. You confess faith in Jesus Christ. And now, if you're in your right frame of mind, you are looking to his word for assurance for your future. 
This is the personal application. This is the big picture application too that we find from our text today. God is sovereign over history and God is sovereign over his own. This meal with Abraham involved his divine visitation, the reception and communion, and also his word and the response of his servants. Next week, there will be a meal laid before us. It will include the elements that Jesus told us to consume that represent his body and blood. As you sit down at the table that he has prepared before us next week, if you are a believer in this room, remember what it signifies. The lamb was slain that you might have fellowship at the Lord's table. He has made for you a table and spread it with the bounties and extravagant feasts in the presence of your enemies. Your enemies, sin, the devil, the fallenness of this world, your own wickedness, which separated you from fellowship with an almighty God, he has spread a table in the presence of those and he has taken care of them in the sacrifice of himself so that you might have communion with God. That is the certification of the covenant by way of meal. And we have that ceremony yet with us today, the Passover fulfilled at the Lord's table. Remember this next week as we partake together and let us close in prayer today. Dear Lord, we thank you for the assurances of your holy word. We thank you for the promises of scripture. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that these ways and means that you have provided for the redemption of mankind have been beautifully unfolding throughout the ages until their culmination in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray that as we respond to this message, that we would be stirred to hope and encouragement, that your purposes are fulfilled in your time, in your way, in spite of trials, unto reconciliation and fellowship and friendship with the Holy God. Lord, I pray that we would be ready at the day of your visitation to recognize you and to welcome you. And I pray that in the meantime, we would announce to a wicked world to repent of their sin and to prepare and meet the one who will surely return. We thank you, Lord, that these assurances from your scripture keep your church and provide for us great hope. Lord, I pray that you would reinforce our faith as a result of your proclaimed word this week, that we might walk more circumspect, more faithfully to the call. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.